You may be seated. Let me say a couple of things before we begin our sermon this morning. You, most of you should have received uh, your newsletter, either in the mail or by email, uh, earlier in the week. Just a couple of notes about that. One is if you're not on the email or on the newsletter list, please see me, call Cindy, and we'll get you on it. It is our primary means of communication. And so I'd urge you when you get it to read it because it does have helpful information in it. Uh, one of the significant things in the newsletter this month was our financial report from 2016. And all I can say is I'm humbled by it. I'm thankful for it. When our officers set the budget for 2016, uh, over a year ago, we were in hopes of calling someone, Mason. And uh, we did that on faith. And my hasn't the Lord honored that faith. Thank you for your faithful giving to the church. Uh, thank you for your support of the ministry here. It's an indication, I think, that God is blessing us. It's obvious that He is. And I thank Him. We praise Him for that. All praise and glory is due to Him. The other thing is that has enabled us, as I said in my newsletter piece, it's enabled us to set aside some money to invest in our mission trip for this summer. And we're thankful for that. Uh, I intended to pray for the, our mission trip earlier. I forgot. Uh, but there'll be a, a meeting, an informa another informational meeting next Sunday evening following evening worship. If you're interested in uh, being a part of that, please plan to be here next Sunday evening for that that meeting. So, with that in mind, we turn now to God's Word, continuing our study in the Psalms. And this morning we're in Psalm 65. Psalm 65. This is God's Word. There will be silence before you in praise in Zion, O God. And to you the vow will be performed. O oh, you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We'll be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the wa their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks 
and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. It is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you and we love your word. And we're so thankful for it and thankful for times like this together as your people where we can read it and ponder it, meditate on it, study it, think about it, and apply it. But Father, we know we can't do that on our own. We need your help. And we thank you that you sent a helper, the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that he would be our teacher today. He would open our eyes to see the truth of your word, our ears to hear it, and our hearts to receive it. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the, the Psalms have been called the expressions of the heart of the godly man. And I think that's an accurate description of the Psalms. The, the Psalms are so personal, and they're so honest, aren't they? And, and the mood of the Psalms change according to the circumstances of the one who wrote that particular Psalm. That's one reason we identify with the Psalms so much and why we are drawn to them so often. Just think of the, of the last few psalms that we've studied. Psalm 51 was a psalm of confession of sin. Psalm 56 was a psalm of trusting God in the midst of adversity. Psalm 65 that we're dealing with today is a psalm of, of knowing God, the importance of knowing who God is. And so from the, the, the brokenness of a man, because of his sin, confessing that sin to God. To a man in a very hard place, trusting God with every detail of his life. And to a man praising God for his understanding of who God is. The, 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 the Psalms run the full gamut of the emotions that we experience as human beings. This Psalm does describe for us, I believe, several of the attributes of God. Now, before we get into the psalm itself, I want to stress again how crucial it is for you to gain your understanding of who God is from what God has told us about himself through creation and through his word. That is, the only way we can really know God is through what he has revealed of himself to us through what he has made and through what he has said. God did not have to reveal anything of himself to us. And yet in his good grace, through his self-disclosure, we have, can come to, to know and understand everything that we need in order to know God, to, to worship God, and to serve God. But the problem is, that many people, even many professing Christians, do not derive their understanding of who God is from what God has told us about Himself. Instead, they, they form their own idea about God from who they think He ought to be and from what they think He ought to do. Now, that's a real problem. And the Bible acknowledges that problem. If you keep your finger in Psalm 65 and flip over to Psalm 51... Um, Psalm 50. We didn't study Psalm 50. Remarkable statement. You've heard, some of you heard me refer to it before. Verse 21. It says, These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought I 
You thought that I was just like you. You thought that I was just like you. You know, our natural tendency is just that, isn't it? It is to think that God is somehow just like us, that he thinks like us, that he acts like us, that he would do what we would do. But that's a major mistake because it distorts the distinction between the creator and the creature, between the divine and the human between God and man. You know, the Bible clearly teaches that we have been made in God's image. And it forbids us, forbids us from trying to make God after our own image. But that's exactly what many people try to do. That's what the Israelites tried to do, wasn't it? They tried to make God after their own image. We try to make God into what we want Him to be instead of what the Bible declares that He is. You see, we have it backwards. You don't understand who God is by studying yourself. But you understand yourself by studying who God is. And so our greatest need is to know God, to know who He is and what He is like. In Psalm 65 helps us there. It gives us a wonderful description of the character of God. As several of the Psalms are, this Psalm was a song. It was a song written by David. It was used in the worship of God by the people of God. Now, you know how much I love the old hymns of the church. That's why we sing them in our worship not just because I like them. It's the reason I like them. Because so many of the great hymns of the church have such great content about the character of God. A hymn book is a treasure chest, folks, of expressions of the knowledge of God, of the character of God. And that's what Psalm 65 is. Psalm 65 was a song that was sung in the worship of God about his character. Now, it's not exhaustive. This psalm has three stanzas. We'd call them three verses if it was in our hymn book today. And each of these stanzas, I believe, describes a particular attribute of God. That's what we're looking at this morning. So first, David, in the first stanza, David reflects on God's grace. God is gracious. Or to say it in a more familiar way, God is full of grace. Grace, of course, has to do specifically with how God deals with our sin. Now again, that was a major focus of our study back in Psalm 51, wasn't it? When David again confessed his sin. In verse 1, he pled for God to be gracious to him. Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. David appealed for God's grace, God's loving kindness, and God's compassion to be extended to him in the midst of his sin. And it's grace that the psalmist deals with here in the first four verses. Notice how he begins in verse 1. There will be silence before you 
and praise in Zion, O God. And to you the vow will be performed. Now, you might be thinking, I thought you said the first section was about grace. Where's the grace there? It sounds a lot like a focus on God's majesty to me. Well, if that's what you're thinking, you're exactly right. And that's just the point that's made all the way through the Bible. In order to understand God's grace, you first have to understand God's majesty. You see, the grace of God is most fully understood against the backdrop of His majesty, of His glory, of His power, as we sang just a moment ago, of His holiness. You see, the reason grace is so amazing is the fact that this majestic, powerful, holy God would have anything to do with sinful people like you and me. Notice again how Psalm, how David begins it. There'll be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God. If the Bible is clear about anything, it is that when someone comes into the presence of God, there are three immediate responses or reactions. One is silence. One is humility. And one is praise or worship. You see, when you really understand and grasp the fullness of the majesty of God, now none of us can fully grasp it this side of heaven. But the more you grasp the majesty the power, the holiness of God, you're really struck by this sense of awe and silence before Him. You're brought low when you understand how majestic God really is. And it leads you to expressions of praise and worship. But that's where you must begin. Notice where David goes then in verse 2. O oh, you who hear prayer, to you all men come. You see, there's the grace. This God before whom proper reverence is to be given. This God of majesty before whom there is silence and praise and to whom the vow will be performed. This God hears the prayers of His people. And He beckons us to come to Him. Notice the difference in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, the focus was on the people of God, the Jews, and their worship in Israel. Or, or in Jerusalem. There will be silence before you and praise in Zion. That's Jerusalem, O God. And then he goes on in verse 2. O you who hear, prayer, who hear prayer, to you all men come. You see, the gospel is not limited just to one nation. The gospel is extended, as we know, to all people. And yet, we come to God, to the one true God, only through the grace that He extends to us. And David expresses that amazing grace even more clearly in verse 3, where he says this, Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. If David's anything... David's honest, isn't he? 
You know, it's not like sin. We just stumble into sin every once in a while. It is no sin's an aberration, just an occasional slip, a surprising event in our lives. Notice how David says it. Iniquities prevail against me. You know, sin's a problem. It's a real problem. It's a continuing problem. Even for those of us who have new life in Christ. We see God's amazing grace in what David says in the second part of that verse. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. You talk about good news. You know, we don't have to wait till we get the New Testament to find the good news of the gospel. Here it is, right here in Psalm 65 and verse 3. As to our transgressions, David says, you forgive them. I'll quote again, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and He is just to forgive them. Please, please hear that wonderful truth this morning. God forgives our sins. I know on the basis of what the Bible says that you have sinned. And I know on the basis of what the Bible says you do sin. Some of you this morning are here under a weight of sin. Your sin prevails against you. And you wonder if there's any hope, any hope of restoration, any hope of forgiveness, any hope of being renewed. And my message to you this morning is, yes, there is hope. Because God is a God of grace and God forgives our sins. That word forgive there in verse 3 is actually the word atone. You know, in Christ, God atoned for our sins. He satisfied His own justice. He covered our sins with the blood of His Son. That's why in verse 4, David can go on to say this, How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. How blessed is that person whom you've forgiven. How blessed is the person you have chosen to bring to your courts. What a wonderful truth that is, that God is a gracious God who brings His people to Himself, who covers their sin with the blood of His Son, who atones for those sins and forgives them. My friends, this morning, hear the hope of the gospel. And if you have not experienced that forgiving grace of Christ, I encourage you, I invite you, I call you today to give your heart to Him. Ask Him to forgive you, and He will. Confess your sins to Him. He will hear, and He will forgive. It is what the Bible says. God is a God of grace. But in the next verse of our hymn this morning, of this psalm, David reflects on God's greatness. It's no coincidence, I don't believe, that he moves from a focus upon God's grace to a focus upon God's greatness. I said earlier that the more you understand God's majesty or God's greatness, the more you'll understand God's grace. The principle is this. 
The lower your view of God, the lower will be your view of grace. The higher your view of God, the higher will be your view of grace. To minimize the greatness of God, to bring God down to our level, is to cheapen the value of His grace. And so in verses 5 through 8, right here in the middle of the psalm, David makes sure, makes sure we get it. He makes sure we understand the greatness of God. Notice the way the psalmist refers to God's greatness in verse 5. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness. O God of our salvation, you are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea. And then he goes on to verses 6 and 7. Who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of their peoples. Here we see a clear picture, don't we, of God's sovereignty, of God's greatness. The Lord, he says, performs awesome deeds. I think one of the unfortunate things about our contemporary English language is that we've minimized the significance of the word awesome. Everything's awesome today, isn't it? Is it any wonder then when we come to a verse like Psalm 65, 5, we kind of ho-hum over it. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness. Look, these are not just deeds God performs. These are awesome deeds. These are incredible deeds. These are unbelievable deeds. They are a reflection of God's greatness. Notice what he says. His sovereignty extends to all ends of the earth and to the farthest sea. That, folks, is awesome. He established the mountains by his own strength and might. That is awesome. He stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves. He quiets the tumult of the people as they rise up against him with their armies, even in their nuclear weapons, and he subdues them. That is awesome. He makes all creation to worship him, and that is awesome. Our response to the greatness of God should be true worship. Verse 8, They who dwell in the ends of the earth do what? They stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. The Bible says that all that God has made is to declare His glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. Do you know the the heavens, the creation is in a continual state of worship of God? The God that made it? Just look out among what you see outside and you see His glory and His beauty. It points to, to to His power, to His majesty, to His creative and sustaining power. And the more we understand God's greatness, the more we're to join with all creation in the worship of our God I'll just say it the proper response 
to understanding the greatness of God is true worship. I, I keep stressing, I think the older I get, the more I stress it, is the significance and the importance of worship. What you must understand again is that your, your sense of the value of worship is directly tied to your understanding of the greatness of God. I didn't say your sense of coming to church is tied to your understanding of the greatness of God. Because if you're just coming to church to come to church, you're missing the point. This is about worship. This is all about turning our hearts to God and understanding His greatness and praising Him for who He is and what He has done. And the, the psalm says God is great. His greatness extends over all creation. And all creation, including us, we're to worship Him. And then there's one last verse. Verse 3. Verses 9 through 13. And there David reflects on God's goodness. He turns from God's greatness to focus on God's goodness. You know, there's a little prayer many children say before their meals. I used to say it myself. You know, it's God is great. God is good. That's what Psalm 65 says. Verses 5 through 8 say God is great. And verses 9 through 13 say God is good. We sing a chorus in worship. Sometimes it just says that. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. And in the end of the psalm, the focus is upon God's goodness, especially in His providence, His goodness to the creation and those of us who live in it. Listen again to the beautiful way He describes it in verses 9 and 10. He's talking to God now. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. What a beautiful way to describe the goodness of God. It's almost as though God in person comes to visit the earth. And He causes what He has made to grow. He enriches the earth. He makes it uh, fertile. Uh, He fills the streams with water. He causes the grain to grow from the earth. He waters it. He softens it with showers. He blesses its growth. It's just a a very personal picture of the goodness of God. So much so, he goes on to say in verses 11 through 13, You have crowned the year with your bounty. Your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip. The hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks. The valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. Again, just look about you. Look about you and see the goodness of God. The heavens do display the glory of God, but folks, they display the goodness of God. Now, preachers don't like for it to rain on Sunday morning. But the rain is good, isn't it? It's a blessing. God is watering the earth. 
instead of me fretting on Sunday morning, looking at the weather forecast hour by hour to see when it's going to rain. I'll say, God, you're so good. You're so good. You're giving us some water. You're giving us some rain. And we praise you for your goodness. You know, folks, we Presbyterians like to focus upon the greatness of God, don't we? The majesty of God, the sovereignty of God. Let's don't ever forget that God's good. The Bible is clear in teaching that God is good. I want you to just get a flavor of it. Turn with me back to Psalm 34. In verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Go over to Psalm 86. In verse 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. And it drops on down and says, And abundant in loving kindness. To all who call upon you. Then Psalm 118. And verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 135. And verse 3. Praise the Lord. For the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. And then one more, Psalm 145. In verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. You know, Jesus had an interesting way of saying it. He said, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more? Does your Heavenly Father know how to give what is good to those who love Him? What's the point? The point is that God is good. His goodness is balanced by His greatness. And His goodness is strengthened by His greatness. Don't focus so much on His greatness that you forget that He is good. And don't focus so much on His goodness that you make Him too much like us. Keep the balance between God's greatness and God's goodness. And that little child prayer will help you. God is great. And God is good. You know, these psalms are so important. There's so much confusion in our world today, isn't there? Why is there so much confusion? Why do we see so much unrest? Why do we see much, so much distress? It's because people are confused about God. You see, God is the answer. He really is the answer, folks. God is the answer to you understanding yourself, who you are, your purpose in life, your reason for being here. God is the way that you understand life out there. And if you don't understand 
Him, you can't understand this. If, if you're not looking through life, through biblical spectacles, biblical glasses, God-centered glasses, you'll never understand what is taking place all around us. That's why texts like Psalm 65 are so helpful and so important. They help us to understand that the character of God is significant for us and the character of God is important for us. It helps us to understand that uh, the Lord is real. That God is a God of grace. He's a God who's great. and He's a God who's good. As we conclude, I want you to see what the Bible says. And that we see the character of God most fully in the person of Jesus. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus is the personification of grace, isn't he? He proclaimed the gracious promise of forgiveness of sins, the assurance of eternal life, and the confidence of having a relationship with his Father. He said, I came that you might have life, and that you might have it abundantly. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. And I'll receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Folks, that is grace. Jesus is the personification of grace. But also he shows God's greatness. What did Jesus do? He said to the winds and the waves, Hush, be still. He showed his power over the demons by saying, come out of him. And to some demons, you go into those swine. He showed his power over illness, illness by saying to a man, take up your bed and walk. And he showed his power over death by taking the hand of the little girl. Telling her, I say to you, arise. Yes, God is great in his sovereignty. We see his greatness in the person of His Son. But also, Jesus shows us God's goodness. He took the children into His lap and He said, Suffer the little children to come to Me and forbid them not. He took the five loaves and the two fish and He fed a multitude with them. He said to those who are weary, Come to Me. All you are here who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He said to the thief on the cross, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Folks, know the character of God. It will change your life. Know that He is a God of grace, a God of greatness, and a God of goodness. And see those things most clearly in the person of His Son, our Savior. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the truth of it. And we thank you for what we've learned today from this psalm about you, that you are a God of grace, a God who is great, a God who is good. Probably help us to delight in that and worship you because of it. May it encourage us today as well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.